Welcome to Blind Spots, a podcast where we're helping you fill the gap between what you want to do with your money and what you actually do. We are professional investors, writers, and financial planners helping you navigate the complexities of finance to optimize what you can control and cut out the rest. Join your host, Nick Shermans and Aaron Varghese, as we discuss the questions and nuances surrounding everyday money management. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Blind Spots. In today's episode, we are going to be talking all about what your financial advisor does every single day. You may see them once a year, once a quarter, every other month, but what are they really doing in between that time to manage your money and to serve you? So today we're going to be going over what you might think your advisor is doing and what we actually do here at Peer Portfolios. And we are qualified to speak on this topic because both myself and Aaron have worked on both sides of the aisle. We've worked for mega firms, mega public firms, some of the largest institutions on the planet. And we've also worked on the independent side, on the RIA side. So we'll talk about the genesis of this topic, where it came from. Aaron's got a great story. I've got a story. And our biggest frustration at Pure, because we focus a lot on our content, the podcast, marketing, the blog, videos, just to educate people to make better decisions, whether that's financial planning or investment management, behavioral issues. And we always run into this misconception that all advisors are the same. And that if you work with an advisor, you can check the box. It's all good. And look, there's, there's a lot of really good advisors, but there's more poor advisors. So we're going to unpack a lot of this for you and delve into the daily behaviors of an advisor at a large publicly traded firm. So the ones you see on TV, the ones you see on commercials, the ones you see in the newspaper and the Wall Street Journal, the talking heads on CNBC, those are all troops for the mega Wall Street advisor versus what we do at a firm like Pure. Because I think you'll see there's a night and day difference on the daily behavior. So we're gonna talk a lot about incentives, about behaviors and habits, and this podcast is for those that work with a publicly traded big bank insurance company strip mall advisor. And we're not going to name names because I don't want to get sued, but you should be able to connect the dots. So why don't you start out with your experience, maybe in hindsight, how do you feel about that time period of your life and your work experience there? Just general consensus. So I started as a suit and tie, as I'll call it, when I was in my early, or no, excuse me, in my 20s, in my late 20s. So, so I was green. I didn't really know any better. I'm 41 now. So I wore a suit and tie to work every day, worked for a big public private bank, met a lot of great people. It was a great experience, but I quickly learned what game they were playing, what, what was important, what drove my compensation, uh, what incentive systems were in place to drive my behavior. And it had nothing to do with client outcomes. Like we never talked about client outcomes. Like, hey, I got this new client. I repositioned their portfolios. I lowered their fees. I incre increased their tax efficiency. I educated them on why this new portfolio better suits their needs and goals. Like if you were to talk like that, people would look at you like you were crazy. That, that had no floor during our group meetings. No one yeah. wanted to hear any of that. What we did talk about was 
What other opportunities does your client have? Can we refer him to business banking? Can we refer him to retail banking? Can we sell him or her a credit card? Can we open a line of credit on their new investment account? How can we further monetize this new client? So that was, mm -hmm. that was the bulk of it. Also, great job, Nick. You just brought on this client. What else do you have in your pipeline? Let's go through it every month. Let's have a formal meeting to talk about it every month. Let's set up a Monday morning call at 8 a.m. with the entire team to talk about what everyone is closed or is about to close. What have you done for me lately? Most of your pay, Nick, remember, is tied up on what you can refer to other areas of the bank and what you bring in. Okay. Mm -hmm. 90% of what we talked about, 90% of my day, day in and day out was... What have you brought in? What else are you bringing in? How can you monetize your client book? So how often did you have those meetings? Sales meetings? Yeah. Team meetings. Every, every week, every Monday morning. I cannot come up with a more demoralizing way to start your work week than having a 8 a.m. sales meeting to talk about what you've closed. Yeah. It was like a, just a weird energy in that room. Like I, I'll, I'll never forget the feeling. It's, it was just an awkward forced conversation. No one really wanted to be there. They were going through the motions. It was just very empty and hollow. Mm. And then we would also have one-on-ones with our boss to go over our pipeline and what we've closed. They would send out a weekly, weekly spreadsheet of who closed what and how you stack up against your peers. Yeah. So it was like in a way, you know, if you got off to a slow start, let's say in the first quarter of the year, it was like a public shaming. Yeah. Dying to like prod you and say, hey, look, you're you're in the bottom quartile and your boss comes to you and how can we fix this? This is this is most advisors daily lives. There's there's advisory firms out there that require their advisors to go knock on people's doors to drum up business. Yeah, I'm laughing because I'm just having flashbacks. It's been like we talk about this kind of stuff a lot, but I don't think about my personal experiences all the time. And it's just it's all coming back. Why don't you share a personal story about a job interview that you had. Well, before I get to that, I want to ask you about the, how else you spent your time just kind of during the day, during the week. So you have these meetings here and there once a week, but several times a week, kind of touching on the same areas. What else were you doing for your clients? Because you were a portfolio manager, you know, your clients think that you're probably sitting there trading all day. So what, what were you really doing? So there, there was certainly some of that. I, I traded in the mornings. I read research in the mornings. Uh, but I was doing a lot of sales activity, which I just mentioned. Mm -hmm. But the, the setup at most private banks is you've got these salespeople, and they call them different names, but they're salespeople. Yeah. And they're highly paid, and their job is to go out and network and find prospective clients. Mm -hmm. Many of these salespeople are very good at schmoozing, they're very good socially, they make you feel at ease, they're really good communicators, but they're not so well-versed on the investment side. Mm -hmm. So me as a portfolio manager would often get asked to go on a lot of these pitches. So I would go out with the salespeople and pitch. I would pitch the bank's offering, which was good on one hand. It was good experience, good client-facing experience, get in front of high net worth folks. That's all great. But more and more of my time was randomly get, getting pulled into these meetings. And a lot of these salespeople flew by the seat of their pants, right? And if, and if they could accelerate the sales process, then they would do anything that it took. So I mm -hmm. would meet 7 p.m. with a business owner at their headquarters in Gresham or downtown. Like I was just getting pulled everywhere. 
And then I sprinkled in some of my own client meetings in addition, again, to trading and other sales, formal sales meetings. But, you know, if I was to divide up my time, yeah. more than 60 or 70% was some sort of sales activity, either internal meetings or external prospect pitches. So 60 to 70% focusing on prospecting and then the rest 30 to 40% was on your personal client. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair breakdown. But I also think what most people miss is if you want to cut through a lot of the BS that your advisor talks about, ask them how they're paid, especially if they work for a big firm, because mm -hmm. I'm a firm believer that incentives drive human behavior. If I'm incentivized to cross sell, like you saw this with the Wells Fargo scandal. Yeah. Right. And that was the most egregious example, but incentives were driving that behavior. Mm -hmm. You have to open 10 checking accounts a day. Well, then what are you going to focus on? Open 10 checking accounts a day. Some were made up, some weren't, but hey, yeah. who's counting? It's 10. Mm -hmm. So if you want to understand what your advisor does every day, understand their incentives. And I know it's probably awkward to say, hey, buddy, how, how do you get paid? But it's not really that awkward. If you're entrusting someone and you're paying tens and thousands a year in fees to understand where that money goes, how they're being paid, what incentives that you might not see that could mm -hmm. be bad for you and good for your advisor, unpack all of that and you'll understand some of the advice through a little clearer lens. Yeah, and it might feel like an awkward conversation to actually verbalize that to somebody, but in all reality, it has to be disclosed pretty well on what you get paid for and when in our ADVs, we have to talk about that kind of stuff. So you can find the information without asking, but it's an easier avenue to just directly ask. Yeah, and, and look, your, your advisor should be forthright about how they're paid, how the fees work, mm -hmm. how you track the fees, how they're personally compensated. If there's a conflict of interest, if you're trying to get them to invest in mutual fund A versus mutual fund B, ask why. Ask if they're getting any kickbacks. There's so many ways advisors get paid in the in the big firms that might not be obvious, mm -hmm. but if you know where to look and you know what questions to ask, you can you can start to unpack some of these misaligned incentives and conflicts of interest. I can't tell you how many times someone has told me. They work with an advisor that they're all good. That's fine. Through our, our newsletter, our blog, something triggers them to reach out to us. They sit down. They show us their portfolio. They share with how their advisor is working with them. They share the advice their advisor is giving them. If they work with a big institution, a big public bank, a big insurance company, a big Wall Street firm, 99 times out of 100 or, or the majority of times we find egregious violations of basic portfolio management principles, of tax inefficiency, of excessive fees, of conflicts of interest, of misaligned incentives, I can, I can look at someone's statement and tell them where they should look further. And mm -hmm. it's like, you can see the light bulbs go on and things start to churn. They don't always change, but I feel like I've done my job as, as a professional fiduciary by pointing these things out. That gives me satisfaction. Okay. So Typical day, 60 to 70% spent gathering assets, meeting with prospective clients, meetings, that kind of stuff. The scale is definitely tilted away from the client focus. Those people that you are actually bringing on then fall kind of to the back burner. So I don't know how relevant my story really is in this conversation, but I think it speaks to the industry and how it, it can look. And that's not always pretty. So, you know, we talk about how there's a, this misconception that all advisors are the same. And so I think that 
this goes down that path. So when I was coming out of college, I was trying to figure out where I wanted to land. I was working at a big bank, never in the wealth management space at the bank, but had lots of experiences similar to what Nick did, where your incentives truly do drive your behavior because you have these goals that you are supposed to meet. Now, the bank that I worked for says or said at this time that, you know, you have these goals, you're supposed to meet it. It's kind of like strike one, two, three, then you're out. But the rumor around was that no one was really out like they were at some other larger institutions like Wells Fargo. So the natural progression for someone like myself would have been to transition into the wealth management space. But because of some experiences that I've seen internally, I wasn't interested in making that transition. So I started, of course, looking elsewhere. And one of the places that I interviewed for laid out this pretty extensive interview process, which I'm new to the game. I don't really know what to expect. Sounds good. I'll go through the process. First meeting is coming to a close at about an hour. It sounds pretty typical to what I thought I should expect. And as it's coming to a close, they say, okay, here's the next step. This is what the next meeting will look like. Prior to the next meeting, we need you to provide us a list of 50 names, friends, family that you can contact. And the idea was that you would start building your book of business off of this list of names. And they said explicitly, if you cannot do that, then we don't want to move forward. So knowing what I knew about the industry, that wasn't the type of position that I wanted to be in. And that wasn't the type of company that I wanted to work for. So I thanked them for their time and graciously ended the interview process after meeting number one. But it just really set the tone for the type of firm that I had my eyes set on that I wanted to find. And eventually I found Pure Portfolios, which is far opposite from that experience. But it's just really sad to me that there are people trying to get into the industry and do right by clients and they fall trap into these types of firms. Aaron, what percentage of financial advisor roles coming out of college or someone with limited experience are really sales jobs in your opinion? The best advice that I got from someone who is a seasoned advisor was to find a role that you can grow in. And if you don't find that type of position where you can kind of move up, um, you're going to 100%, 10 times out of 10, be in a sales position because that's just what your options are. Because for the licenses that you are required to obtain, you have to work at a firm. And it's this vicious cycle of you can't get your licenses unless you work at the firm, but you can't work at the firm unless you have your licenses. So it's almost a guarantee unless you hit the lottery or you know someone that you're going to be in a sales position. It's just a fact of the matter, in my experience. I think your experience is pretty accurate with most people Mm-hmm. that are trying to break into this business, which is a shame, really. Yeah. There, there's, so one more quick story. So there's, a, there's an insurance company out there. They're, they're a private insurance company, but they're massive. 99% of people on this podcast would have heard of them. I'm not going to name them. Their playbook for growing, and I'm not even kidding, because I worked at this place. I've, I've seen it with my own eyes, is to hire young people out of college. They actually have a college internship program yeah. that bring people in. The hiring insurance company knows most of these young people are going to fail. Their job is purely sales-based, based on selling insurance, okay? Once the intern is in the building, once they become an employee, they are teamed with a senior agent, a senior advisor. I mean, they call them an advisor, but you're really 
an insurance salesman, mm-hmm. okay, a senior person, that senior person probably knows there's a very, very high chance of this young green intern flaming out of the business. Mm-hmm. But they ask the young intern, who's now an employee, to contact their closest 30 friends and family to bring in. Okay, their, their livelihood, their job depends on it. So they do it. Fast forward a year, six months later, that intern has lost their job. They've lost their, their momentum. Their, their network doesn't extend beyond their friends and family, and they're looking for a different job. Meanwhile, all the clients that that senior person now inherits, right, from the, from the broker that has moved on or from the agent that has moved on, are now mm-hmm. his or hers. That's a way that many of these senior insurance people grow at this firm. They yeah. knowingly bring in people knowing damn good and well they're probably going to fail, but they absorb all the friends and family that these people bring in, and they do it multiple times a year, year over year, and that's a growth strategy for this company and these, and these older agents, and it's just it, appalling to me. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I stayed away from – it's most of these big banks, big broker-dealers that offer those types of college programs, and the way that you described it, it almost sounds like a pyramid scheme. Like you yeah. get your people in your downline, your downline starts signing other people up underneath them. And then you constantly have this stream of people who are just kind of building it out. But it, I mean, it's it's really brutal. And I feel for anyone who wants to get into the industry because almost everyone goes through it. And And I think that most people probably come into it with good intentions and wanting to be that one or 2% that makes it because seriously, these places really have like a 99% fail rate. Right. And it's just really sad. Right. It truly is. So let's, let's shift gears because yeah. let's talk about the way pure was set up. So mm-hmm. it really was the pure, pure was set up was to do the opposite of what I witnessed in my personal professional life, mm-hmm. um, where 70% of my daily behaviors were based on sales. So when I launched the company in 2016, I was very adamant about not having sales goals, zero sales culture, zero sales meetings. All of our advisors spend zero time drumming up business on their own. We don't do marketing events. We don't do seminars and ask our clients to bring their friends. We don't do mixers and say, invite five friends. We don't ask clients for referrals. We don't ask our clients for anything. Okay. Except Google reviews. (laughs) Except, Except Google reviews. And I'll get to that later. My, my vision was to create an edu- educational suite of content, blogs, videos, podcasts, market commentaries, and throw it on the internet. And, and we did that year after year after year. Our content is a work in progress. It's, it's not the best. It's not the worst. But I think it's gotten better over time. Mm-hmm. Google search likes that. Google search likes the consistency of content, updating your website with additional content. Therefore, Pure Portfolios is starting to rank higher in Google search. So when a prospective client comes, comes to us, it probably started with them typing into Google, low-fee financial advisor, low-cost advisor. Pure ranks higher. They click on Pure. They read our website. We've got a, a, a Let's Talk form. They type their email, a little blurb about their situation. We get that. We reach out, we tell our story, it's no full, full court press. Our job, I always say this to prospects, Aaron's heard this, our job is to give you information so you can make an informed decision. My job is to be fully transparent, giving people information so they, make, so they can make the best decision for their family. Yeah. If, if they decide Pure is not a good fit and they're working with a high-cost advisor and go to Vanguard, we, we celebrate that as a win. 
That is a win. Yeah. If they want to do it themselves and, and land at Schwab, I that's a win. Taking clients away from high cost, high fee, conflicted advisors really fires me up. And mm -hmm. if they join Pure, that's fine too. So the way we position the company is to be a more personalized, lower cost surf, right? So if you go to Vanguard, they're great. They're, they're the low cost leader, but they're very impersonal. You get someone with a headset like this on the East Coast managing 30,000 clients. Yeah. Highly impersonal, but okay for low fee seeking uh, consumers. Mm -hmm. on, on the high end, right? You walk into a, a suit and tie office, class A office in a high rise. You're going to pay over 1%. You're going to get a mutual fund portfolio. You're going to get a relationship, however, with someone that knows your family, that, that gets into your goals and dreams and career and all that. Okay. But, but you're paying a lot for it. It's a personal partnership, but you're paying a lot for it. We've designed our company to be a low fee personalized service, slightly more expensive than Vanguard with the personal service you would expect with a more, tra more traditional advisor. So our daily behaviors are completely different. And I hate being called a financial advisor. It really makes my skin crawl because mm -hmm. what we do versus what the average Wall Street advisor does on a daily basis is night and day. I, like I went to Bandon Dunes a couple of years ago. And there was a group, some of the guys I knew, some of the guys I didn't. And one of my friends said, oh, my friend from high school is coming. He, he does the same thing as you. And I pause and I look at him and I'm thinking, okay, what, what firm does this guy work for? He names like the biggest, most fined, SEC fined firm out there uh, that's really just a, just a sales, sales culture. Mm -hmm. And I, and I didn't say anything, but I take offense to that. Like, I don't want to be lumped in with guys that are breaking laws and are on the SEC's bad list. So what I'm saying is, is our behaviors are heavily client centric. Our content is our sales team, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But our content doesn't need a raise. It doesn't call in sick. It doesn't require mixers or events. It doesn't get paid a salary. It just lives on the internet and allows people to find us. Okay. That eliminates 70% of what most advisors do. It frees us up to focus on what's important which is client outcomes, talking to clients, running their financial plans, uh, managing the money, trying to approve our in investment process and writing educational content. That's basically all we do. So to bring it kind of back around to where we started, break down your day for me, which it's going to be a little bit different now because you're a business owner now versus what you were doing before, but you still very much so work in the business every single day. So break down your day. Yeah, so my day's different than most. So I, I'm the president of Peer. I, I own uh, I own the company. So I'm trying to build a culture, managing a team, creating an identity. So that's that's a chunk of what I do. But I also manage a decent portion of our clients. I'm the lead on a decent portion of our clients. I'm the chief investment officer, which means I make all the investment decisions. I built our investment platform. It's rules heavy. So it doesn't require me to come in and say, I think emerging markets are going to do well this month. It's based on a series of rules. We're always trying to improve and refine it, but it's, it's a non-emotional way to invest. Mm -hmm. I write and produce most of our content. I'd like that to change because I think we have some talent and we're going to be adding more talent. And I think I'd like to unleash them. I think our listeners and readers would like to hear a different voice. And I'm also heavily involved in our client service, client meetings, answering client questions on what's going on with the market. Like last year was a really difficult year. I feel like 
I had more calls than I usually would, which is great. I think in difficult markets, people want to communicate. That, that's why they hire us and, and don't go to a Vanguard because when the stuff hits the fan, people want to talk to a real human. So I felt like last year I was doing more on the uh, market-related commentary through the blog and then also talking with people more and getting pulled in and some of Aaron's meetings and some of Toby's meetings just because last year was a scary year. So, so that's why we're here. Um, so very heavy on the client service front in addition to my other uh, responsibilities, which I just mentioned. So of course you don't have sales goals here. But we're also not stagnant. We want to grow the business. So part of that is bringing on new clients. And I think that in any firm that's growing, it's always going to be part of the business. So going back to the first part of our conversation, you had said 60 to 70% of your time was spent on bringing in new business. How does that look against what you do now? Give me the percentage. Yeah, so I I would say I, t I spend... 20% of my time in any given month telling our story to prospective clients. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you an example. So back when I was getting pulled in at the private bank to all these sales meetings, mm -hmm. I, I was very focused on my prep. Like I would have two pages of notes of what I wanted to cover, yada, yada, points that I wanted to hit on with the bank. Mm -hmm. And it was very forced. It didn't feel natural to me. Like I wasn't, like, I really didn't believe in what we were selling, like expensive mutual funds, 1.25% in fees, but, but I was green and I was learning. So that that's what I did at the peer side. I don't view my prospective client meetings as sales calls or sales meetings. I'm simply giving them information. I'm telling them a story. I don't need any notes. I believe in what we're doing. Like I, I crafted it with my bare hands. I'm passionate about what we offer at pure. And 90% of our clients come from other advisors. Mm -hmm. So clients that finally the light goes on, the clients that are working with an advisor and that are on our newsletter and they're reading our blog week after week, usually there's a catalyst and they come to us. Finally, they come to us and they share what they're doing. And our, our, our conversion rate is extremely high because this stuff isn't, isn't rocket science, okay? You're paying 1.25%. Our fees start at 0.65%. That, that equals thousands and thousands of dollars in savings. Mm -hmm. you, you use expensive mutual funds that charge me another 1% or more. We don't use any mutual funds. Now you're talking even more in thousands, right, in savings. We own mutual funds in a taxable account that spit off capital gains every year. I'm paying more in taxes. We don't do any of that. We optimize where, where you own certain assets for taxes. So mm -hmm. you lay this evidence-based case, taking the low-hanging fruit, as we call it, and it, it makes sense for the novice investor. It makes sense for the sophisticated investor. We are interested in what works. Like we are evidence-based. We're, we're interested in the relentless pursuit of what actually works. And none of what we tell prospective clients has anything to do with what the market does next. It has mm -hmm. nothing to do with what I think happens next. It's all harvesting the things we can control. Okay, last year showed that investing is actually hard. Okay, an up market covers up a lot of warts. Most people working with these high fee advisors didn't care because they were making nine, 10% a year. But once it gets difficult, suddenly what you pay for advice matters. Extra mutual fund fees matter. Blowtorching money to Uncle Sam matters. Making emotional decisions matter. Not doing a financial plan matters. Some of our destructive behaviors that, that you didn't really know about, all that matters now. Building a portfolio that reflects the way you feel about risk matters. It, di it didn't matter when markets were going up, but it matters today. Mm -hmm. I apologize. 
So all of that to say that it matters what your financial advisor is doing. And no two advisors are going to be the same. No two firms are going to be the same. So when you are meeting with an advisor, if you work with one already or you are searching for an advisor, it's a great question to ask because it tells you a lot about them and their job and what they eventually will be doing for you and the service that you will receive because you're paying a fee for it. Well, and and look, if, if you're working with an advisor or you're seeking the advice of an advisor, there are so many great places to look that weren't available even 10 years ago. Look on mm -hmm. Google reviews, look on Glassdoor, like understand what existing clients are saying about them, understand what their associates are saying about them. Mm -hmm. Look at the investor, um, investor.gov, I believe. There's, there's several sites out there that show CC fines, right? The regulatory body of, of the financial services space. You would be surprised how many people hire an advisor that is, has dis disciplinary marks by the SEC. Like we had one, and I talked about this a while back, we, we had one client fire us and hire an advisor that was under the investigation by the state of Oregon for defrauding investors. Recently, that advisor got completely banned, got their licenses revoked for ripping people off. And it, it, it's like that, that should never happen. And they, they fell for a pitch, they got duped, and now they probably are looking back and, and beating themselves up. And it's completely avoidable. So we're trying to give you the tools to help understand the landscape because it's not like it was 10 or 20 years ago. There, there's no reason in 2023 to work with a salesperson, a non-fiduciary advisor. Like you're setting yourself up to get fleeced. So that's all we're trying to do here. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that you are accomplishing what you set out to do in creating a different firm, which is exciting for you and just the industry as a whole. So thanks for listening to this episode of Blind Spots. As always, if you have questions, you can reach out to us at insight at pureportfolios.com and we will see you in the next one.